So just to sum up a little bit of what we said so far, and we've repeated this on the retreat, disenchantment comes um, partly because of the pervasive flattening of um, either biological or psychological reductionism, uh, reduced to my uh, neurophysiology or um, my um, psychological, uh, my, my, my past history and events, or sociologically reduced as social conditioning or whatever. And there's a flattening in that reductionism. Um, or there's a, a kind of uh, inhibited capacity for enchantment that comes out of certain spiritual uh, emphases, overemphasizing this, um, uh, whether it's in the Buddha Dharma or in other traditions, or Vaita Vedanta or whatever it is, um, the emphasizing of the universal, the self as... Um, process, the self as nothing, always regarding the self as empty, etc. This oneness, whatever it is, and that teachings or levels of perception emphasize the, um, the universal versus that emphasize and include um, the particular, the particular person, the, what, what is my individual personhood, if you like, and, and a regarding of that in and through the particulars. Um, and the events of my life, all of them, uh, regarding that uh, as as divine, and even more than that, as necessary to the divine, necessary to God. My particulars, my person, your person, your particulars, your struggle, your dukkha, all the aspects, the infinite aspects that make you up, are somehow necessary to God. Necessary to God. God needs you to go through this because in a way through you going through that he, she, it goes through it. It's part of the growth of and the being of God. And then also uh, there's this disenchantment as we talked about um, in another talk because of uh, this is less less obvious, more insidious, if you like, this relative balance between self-aspiration, self-orientation, intentional, self-serving um, orientation in terms of healing or psychological growth or this or that or self-empowerment or self-expression or whatever. And it's it's might use the language of the divine, but it's actually about self or it's mostly that the leaning is about self. Um, uh, rather than leaning more towards the divine and the purpose, the intention, the aspiration, the reason for practice, for healing, for all that, one is really grounding it and orienting it towards the divine. The balance is more that than towards the self. And we could use those as if they're two separate things or there's a way of really integrating the two. But oftentimes this might get, a um, person might think that's what's happening, or, or want to think that's what's happening, that it's really about God, and they use that language. But so quickly, I said in other talks, it gets it slips back to a self-project. Or uh, there's not really the fullness in what was really sensed uh, and, and, and in, the, in the orientation in the first place, that it really was always just about self. It was just a self-project. This is very, very common. So these are uh, some of the reasons which we've touched on now several times, I'm just repeating, are that, that kind of um, 
constellate and condition and um, hold in place a, dis- a disenchantment, uh, actually of everything, but, but in this case of uh, we're focusing more on, on self and other. And then we could ask, given all that, we could ask again, um, what needs re-enchanting? Um, what, uh, when we say to re-enchant the self, what, what do we mean more fully by that? What, what um, aspects or dimensions of the self need re-enchanting? So I would say, actually, all levels of the self uh, need re-enchanting. I'll explain what I mean by that, because I mean it in two, two different but related ways that I've touched on in another retreat. Um, all levels, if you like, of what I've called in another situation the vertical spectrum of the imaginal. So all the images of a self or other. I might feel myself or see myself through this image or through that image, and it's as if they exist on a spectrum. And all of those images need um, uh, need re-enchanting. Uh, and need seeing and feeling uh, as divine. We need to see and feel them as divine. And practice, um, uh, for example, a practice uh, uh, like receiving divine light or love, some of the things we've touched on in this retreat, some of the practices, we've, ideas we've put now, that... Um, this receiving is is uh, of divine light and love is received by all images of the self uh, anywhere on that vertical spectrum of of Im- images of the imaginal of of the self or all levels on that on that spectrum and all levels um, on the spectrum of the fabrication of self sense. So that sometimes, you know, the self is fabricated and tense. It feels very solid and very contracted. Sometimes the self feels like this atomistic process. That's fine. That's a slightly less fabricated. Sometimes the self is, is a much more universal, cosmic self. Sometimes the self is um, a nothingness. Sometimes the self is, is experienced as, as barely there at all, barely fabricated, very um, ethereal, very unformed, very... Um, tenuous, refined sense of self. And sometimes the self is felt and sensed in this, whether it's imaginally or in, in because of the degree of unfabricating itself, is already felt as divine and already light. But all these levels, whether the imaginal levels or the or the levels of different levels of fabrication on the level of on the spectrum of fabrication of the self sense, all of it need to be both um, we need to play with in practice seeing and feeling all of all of these different levels as divine or and or we could say practice is where we for example receive uh, light and love from the divine again all the different levels both imaginal and uh, whatever the word would be fabricatory um, uh, all of them uh, from the most solid and the most painful and contracted to the most blissful and divine and barely there at all. Again, this is one of those things that the more one has um, played with emptiness practice and seen in practice this spectrum of fabrication and played with unfabricating and moved up and down on that spectrum and really seen the um, degree 
to, of range of the fabrication of, in this case, perception of self, um, much more flexibility in moving up and down these spectrums and spectra and and um, and seeing it all as empty and playing with it in these ways. Somehow or other, and in time, all these levels need to get included, seen as divine, felt as divine, and um, receiving divine uh, light and love, etc. In in order to re-enchant uh, the self. So all levels, but also we could say all aspects of self and others. So I, by that I mean things like our emotions need re-enchanting, our uh, desire needs re-enchanting, our dukkha, our suffering needs re-enchanting, our imagination needs re-enchanting, our mind, and I mean mind in the in the broader sense, chitta, heart, um, heart, mind, soul, our creativity needs re-enchanting, our meaningfulnesses need re-enchanting. They, by that I mean they all need to be given legitimacy. And they actually don't. Because of this confusion that we talked about in the different cultures, our, not all our emotions are given legitimacy. And not all our desire is. By, and by given legitimacy, I don't mean acting out, uh, being lost in or anything like that. Given legitimacy, given um, there is something that is a treasure here. There is something sacred. It might be coming out, in a, it might be relating to, in a way, to it in a way that's contorted. It might not fit the picture I have of what is legitimate or holy. But all of this needs to be given legitimate, legitimacy. It needs to be given permission. It needs to be given space to grow and expand and move into. So again, not um, uh, constrained by a certain conceptual framework of what it is or what's allowed or a certain image of what it must be or what's allowed. All these aspects of self. And they need to be, uh, as we said, foreseen as divine in their, if you like, origins, their roots. Not necessarily their origins in time, their sort of their roots, that's a better word. So given legitimacy, given space to grow, to expand, to move into, and seen, felt as divine in origin. So that that's the work of both the conceptual framework, but also of, of practice, practicing ways of looking. So we can just touch on a few of these, perhaps, now. Um, desire. I mentioned desire as one of the aspects of self, uh, one of the elements of self, if you like. And I've talked about this in other talks in the past, and I hopefully will talk more in the future about this in, in much more detail, the possibilities there. But, uh, you know, Henri Corbin, for example, talks about um, longing as being... Uh, uh, if, uh, I can't remember the word he used, but almost like the the driver, the engine of the human being. And there's a kind of nostalgia, if you like, for the divine. So he doesn't mean this nostalgia as in some in the past we were with divine before the Big Bang or whatever like that, but uh, a non-temporal nostalgia. Something in our being knows, knows uh, a closeness with the divine and... Um, we long for that again. Jacob Boehm, a very influential mystic from, uh, I think, the 16th century, um, talked about um, 
were, he used words like purity and innocence because in a way he was surrounded by a culture that put so much emphasis on, on the impure, emphasis on the impurity and the fallenness of humankind. So he used words like, there, there is in us still um, a purity and innocence um, and it longs for, it desires um, what he called the holy or the paradisal element. Uh, it, it longs for um, holiness and paradise and that holiness and paradise is inner uh, it's within us if you like the core of our being but it's also outer in um, in in the world this world as heaven this world as Buddha realm as we've talked about so this um, there's a desire for that the the, the, the we have a desire that is holy. We have desires that are holy, that are divine in origin, that need to be legitimized and given space. And uh, as well as that, and I've talked about this on other retreats, there is, if you like, the desire that comes from the, the daimon, the daimon. Desires that we see in ourselves that don't fit the usual Buddhist, uh, for example, Christian pictures of what it is that we should desire. They seem darker, or we easily confuse them with greed, or we think they're deluded, or it, that's just clinging, or whatever. I'm not going to go into this now, I'm going to mention these as, uh, if you like, two different kinds of desire. This um, transcendent desire, if you like, that Jacob Boehm was talking about. Something in us that is transcendent, that yearns for the transcendent. And also the desire from the demon, the daemon. And the whole question with all this, and, and the question of desire, is the question of eros. Uh, this, uh, what I've been defining uh, in other, other talks and retreats, is eros as the desire for connection. And that having, um, again, a, a quality of inexhaustibility, a quality of always wanting more, what, what the Greeks used to call pothos, within the eros. I always want more, more always wanting more connection, this movement, insatiability, if you like. And very easily we just put all of that into the camp of craving and clinging and greed, etc., in a kind of Dharma language. So are they the same? How are they different? Maybe one is a treasure, one is the pearl of great price, or, or part of that, and, and other ways of relating to that um, actually... Um, make it problematic for us. Certainly the relationship is not simple between eros and, and uh, clinging, craving, whatever, greed, whatever word one wants to use. It's so important for us as human beings to really actively ask these questions and not just to receive, as I said, something from a culture which then becomes stultifying, constraining, actually does not work. Uh, certainly for enchantment, uh, but doesn't actually work in our life. So Gregory of Nyssa, uh, one of the um, fathers, I think, of the orth in the Orthodox Christian uh, tradition, um, he talked. He said, uh, "The thirst of human souls requires some infinite water. How could this limited world suffice?" Thirst of human souls requires some infinite water. How could this limited world suffice? 
So again, the thirst of human souls being the, the, the seeking for the transcendent, for the oneness with God, but also this, um, this as I said, this desire for, for the, de- the daemon, whatever it is, sexual or uh, something else, so easily seen as ego or lower nature or this or that, or uh, clinging, craving, put into a bad camp, but maybe both kinds of desire, both, if you like, the transcendent and what comes through um, the imaginal and, and the erotic in that way. And if I have a limited worldview and a limited self-view, that, uh, that won't be enough for us. We require infinite water. So there's this need for respect for our desires, for changing the view of our desires, for re-enchanting the desires, and also within that recognizing that there's a kind of um, infinity to the desire as well. It desires the infinite, but there's an in- infinitude to the to the to desires as well in terms of what, um, what they are in a deeper sense, what they're conveying in a deeper sense. Uh, I said also the mind needs re-enchanting. So aspects of a human being, our mind, and again mind meaning hearts, uh, psyche, chitta, mind. And we talked about in another talk how um, some views actually uh, regard the the human and the divine mind as uh, a being, if you like, on a continuum. So the human mind at its core, at a deep level of the human mind, is actually one with the divine mind. And certainly the human imagination is also, again, on a continuum with the divine imagination. But if we say mind, then it includes our emotions, our imagination, our creativity, etc. Certainly that idea that um, all of this at its core is is divine. We are impregnated with with the seed, with the word, with the logos of the divine. Or whether it's on a continuum with the divine, that is a metaphysical concept of view. But it's it's one that we can actually entertain in practice, if not one that we can intuit through practice. Actually, have a real sense of again that we can we create it, and then we see what happens when we entertain it, when we employ it, engage it as a way of looking. But we can also intuit it or discover it. Feels like yes, I I I sense that uh, to to be in inverted commas true. I sense um, that I'm discovering this perspective or this um, metaphysical fact, if you like. So these ideas are um, that particular idea is, is uh, you know, again many different traditions. So for Corban, you know, there's really one fundamental creative matrix for all experience and all sensation. And that is this divine mind, or and particularly the divine imagination, because the humans partake of that human imagination, especially when it's trained, when what he would call imaginal, is um, on a continuum with the divine imagination. And again, in certain ideas of uh, the world soul, very similar, or certain certain versions of the Buddha nature teaching in in the Dharma. So this. Seeing of various aspects of our being, of ourself, of of our humanity, um, our mind, or whatever it is, um, aspects of mind, um, this seeing them as divine is 
different, I hope this is clear, it's different from seeing them as anatta, as not-self. So there is, uh, many of you will hopefully know this, there's um, a whole practice of regarding um, the mind, or regarding thoughts, or regarding um, aspects of mind, elements of mind as not-self, as anatta. And a you know, very, very important and skillful practice. Uh, really uh, an avenue into, into a lot of depth. Um, so when we regard things as anatta, when we, we adopt that way of looking, there is this disidentification, not identifying with this or that, uh, with the mind as a whole, with aspects of the mind. There's a disidentification, the freedom that comes with that, but there's also something else that happens, which many of you will recognize. There's a kind of um, prying loose of our kind of automatic tendency to value uh, to believe in our um, our thoughts and uh, and also what they say about us. So when we regard them as anatta, we don't tend to get believe them so much, and we also tend to um, not identify with them and not uh, take them so personally in terms of what they mean for us, about us, about what's going on with us, even uh, more largely. So this is a practice, this seeing things as anatta, this what I call a way of looking. Um, to always do that, to always see every, every aspect of mind as anatta, um, is a little, would be a little silly. It's a, it's a practice, it's a way of looking, again, we're back to this flexibility idea. We, idea. we go in and out of that um, as a potentially skillful way of looking, and it's potentially extremely skillful, extremely fruitful. But the question is, when is it helpful? When is it actually the wrong thing to do to view things that way? Um, so, uh, to, to view it, um, to view that, to try and view that way always would, would be silly. You know, we move in and out, and it brings much deeper insight regarding emptiness. It doesn't only um, bring an ide- disidentification in the moment and prying loose of the valuing and all that. It also brings deeper insights. But still, we move in and out of it according to our sense of when it's helpful, when it's skillful. Just the same, just the same with this way of looking or playing with conception of the divine origins of the self, of the mind, of our images, etc., we move in and out of that view. We need to navigate that movement in or out. We need to navigate our way, find our way with this flexibility of views. It would be silly and probably, you can imagine, pretty dangerous to always regard everything that moves through my mind, any element of myself or mind, as, as holy and divinely inspired and all that. So there needs to be, you know, some pragmatism and wisdom here, and sensitivity is really important. And there's another issue connected with all this that has to do with, if you like, the order of when we, um, of what we regard as divine, the order in which we regard different aspects as divine. Um, so, what is light? and what is good, um, it's easier to see that as divine. But seeing what is dark in us, and what is, quote, bad, or seems bad, to, to regard that as divine, um, would it be safer 
to really cultivate the good and see the divinity of that and develop what is light and uh, and pure, so-called, and then actually to, on that basis, with that resource, um, and having cultivated that, then to um, begin to learn to see and to practice seeing that which is, if you like, darker or uh, the the bad in us as divine. So uh, certainly Carl Jung thought so, that that was the order in which it was quite important that things happened. Um, He said the... uh, But but still, he emphasized the importance um, to see the divinity of darkness, to open to the dark God. So he wrote, uh, I think it's in answer to Job, um, the guilty man is eminently suited and is therefore chosen to become the vessel for the continuing incarnation. This kind of old style language, I hope you can get the gist of what's being said here. The guilty man is eminently suited and is therefore chosen to become the vessel for the continuing incarnation not the guiltless one who holds aloof from the world and refuses to to pay his tribute to life. For in him the dark God would find no uh, room. For in him the dark God would find no room. And actually if we're talking about really fully re-enchanting the dark God, the dark gods need to find room. They need to be re-enchanted the aspects of ourselves that we would usually shut out of a spiritual view. Now that's not spiritual. That can't be divine. They need a way in. But um, his emphasis uh, is is that the good needs to be seen as divine first and actually cultivated first. So we need, in his language, we need um, the development of the Christian virtues. Uh, we could say that the, the paramis uh, of the Bodhisattva generosity and patience and compassion, love, etc. But we also need insight, and insight into emptiness, so that we don't start identifying too rigidly with all this, concretizing it, reifying it, making it real, shrinking around it, clinging to it as a a fixed reality. So yes, you know, many many people hearing this will um, need to spend... Uh, quite a bit more time um, on developing what is light and so-called good and and the the kind of classic Buddhist paramis, etc., and qualities, and the insight into emptiness of self and emptiness of of those qualities themselves. And at some point, it's like the, the being, the soul, and the understanding have the capacity and the skill to start um, regarding much more beyond what is just obviously light, obviously, quote, good, um, uh, uh, regarding all of that, the dark, what seems bad, what seems greedy, or this or that, actually starting to find the divinity in that. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't happen in that order. It doesn't. I mean, mostly I would say that's one of the things that allows it to be stable and safe, etc. But um, things ain't that simple for everyone. And other people do things, some people do things in all kinds of orders, or it's just not so linear.
as we <coughs> mentioned earlier, uh, all wrapped up in all of this, or with all of this, is the relationship with the view of the possibility of um, re-enchanting or enchanting our suffering, our dukkha in life. Now this is, um, like a lot of this, is, is a, this is a delicate question. We have to tread delicately, sensitively here. Uh, it's complex. And uh, if you like, we'd like uh, both in the totality of the teachings of this retreat, both for, uh, from both Catherine and I, we'd, we'd like to kind of uh, present different perspectives on this and you know give due respect to the complexity here so let's go into it just a little bit or from a certain certain angles um, <clears throat> and again uh, I hope you can hear some of this in the context of uh, if you like a response to uh, at least what I perceive as as the um, dominant paradigms existing but uh, want to tread carefully here. So one thing about re-enchanting um, the self and re-enchanting um, the suffering, our suffering uh, in life uh, of ourselves. And one thing is that judgment and enchantment do not go together uh, very well at all. That when we judge ourselves, or when we judge ourselves for suffering, and uh, maybe seeing repeated patterns, still doing the same thing, still making the same mistakes, after all this practice, still have the same problems, and there's a judgment of that, and the self-blame, then uh, the possibility of... um, uh, enchanting the self and enchanting the view of the suffering is is obviously diminished, and similarly actually works the other way as a lot of these things do mutually dependent. Um, the the less enchanted uh, we are with uh, the view of the, the self and the suffering, the um, uh, more likelihood there is to to judge ourselves and judge the suffering. When there's judgment, it's hard to see, almost by definition, hard to see the beauty, the depths of beauty of the self. But this this piece about judgment and self-blame is actually quite interesting when we go into views of self and and uh, and suffering and healing and and all of that and the enchantment of that. Because sometimes what happens is a person has a strand or strands of suffering in their life that seem to last a, a long time, seem to be, uh, you know, painfully persistent over years and decades. And then they're exposed to some psychological paradigm or work uh, or, or, or idea, and uh, they come up with a, uh, what they believe is an explanation for their suffering, for the persistence of those patterns in their life, and it might be certain wounds in in the history, in the family. Um, these are causal, and maybe a situation, ongoing situation or an event, um, caused even a change in the neural mechanisms, etc. And there I now have an explanation. This person has an explanation for their suffering, and for more than that, for the persistence of their uh, problems or patterns or failures or whatever in life. And so that that explanation is believed, and the cause of the um, 
the believed cause of the suffering is no longer the self. Right? Because that happened. It's because um, this event or this ongoing set of conditions or whatever. So it's the, the cause is moved from self-blame um, to something that's not me. Something other that happened to me, that was forced upon me. So there's less self-judgment and self-blame. Uh, and then they find themselves feeling better. The problem's loosening. Um, the, the, pat- the, the pattern's loosening. The problem's alleviating a little bit. Does that mean that that explanation is necessarily true? Is necessarily real? Or is it that what's happened is just the shifting away from the self as what is to blame? The shift, the, the, the alleviation of the self-judgment is, is what is actually uh, healing there. That is actually the element that's, that's uh, causative in the healing. What's actually going on? Because the self, self-judgment, the self-blame can lock... Uh, can can be part of a, a kind of cyclic mechanism that holds the whole um, patterns and dukkha and uh, problems and failures, etc., persistent failures in place. It's the self-judging. And by whatever explanation, that's relieved and something um, begins expanding and moving. There's essentially a restoring that happens, a restoring, a, 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 an alternative narrative Instead of, I'm hopeless, I'm a failure, it's my fault, etc. Which may even be implicit, almost, almost uh, subverbal. There's a restoring of the past, away from self-blame, <coughs> and, um, excuse me, and, uh, and this is actually what liberates, maybe. What's going on there? And these restorings, um, uh, you know, in different cultures can be, can be vastly different. I remember years ago, when I lived in the States and I was studying music, and I used to go around to a friend's house, Hikaru, who was a Japanese uh, from Japan, who was also studying jazz guitar. And we used to play together, we used to jam together and, and uh, for hours. And um, his, I mean, my Japanese was completely non-existent, but his English was, was really not very good at all. So our conversations were, um, were quite limited. But one day... He was generally a very sort of, uh, you know, uh, buoyant, buoyant personality. And one day I went over in the evening, and he was clearly really down. And I was trying to understand, um, you know, can I do anything? What, what's going on? Um, and in in his uh, English, which he did have some English, and, and it was, wasn't that bad, really. But in his English, he said, "It's my ancestors." And he didn't mean it's my family or something that happened to me in my childhood. It's my ancestors. He was talking from a whole different paradigm, a whole different set of beliefs that um, was clearly still um, uh, uh, used and operative in in Japan. Um, It's my ancestors, he said. Um, and but that view of it was clearly something that enabled him to get a little distance from it, to not self-blame, to make him um, okay with this dukkha that was there. So are these different views of what's um, causative for my suffering and uh, and and my patterns or my difficulties, persistent difficulties? Are we talking about truths? I explain it like this, and then and then that helps. Does that mean it's true, or are we actually talking about um, 
the power of beliefs, of interpretations. Are we seeing how the view and the interpretation of something has an effect, which is part of the theme of this whole uh, teaching, uh, teachings that we're giving? What's going on there? Restoring is part of healing, is a big part of healing. And uh, we can have a naive understanding of what's happening there, just believe now I've seen the truth, or actually a more sophisticated and, I'd say, honest understanding, restoring, re-fantasying, re-imaging, recognizing that this is necessary and part of our humanity, part of enchanting, part of our psychology, and certainly part of healing. And even when we see, you know, for example, um, this person, um, I can see them or they tell me about their, uh, now they're caught in this painful triangle with a sibling, uh, sorry, with a, with a friend and an authority figure, and then they report something in the past of how a similar triangle, a painful triangle um, with a sibling and a parent, and then the um, current situation, the pain of that seems to be replicating past family relationships and triangles and difficulties and etc. Seems to be replicating. So we easily think, ah yes, the cause is there. The cause was in the, the instance in the family, in the past. But actually not necessarily, that's not proven. It's not proven that implies that the family, the prior historical one, was the cause of, of the thing that happened later in time. What about this notion, you know, when I use this phrase of um, something, some element of ourself or, or something or some image having um, uh, its roots in divinity, having its origins in divinity, I don't mean its temporal origins. What about archetypal causes as an idea? Not the cause, um, or not the only possible way of interpreting things, way of explaining as the cause is in the past human history. Maybe the cause is archetypal. Maybe this triangle is archetypal. No, of course, that's the whole Oedipal, well, well, one version is the Oedipal thing, but I'm not necessarily talking about that at all. Um, but it's putting the causes, uh, or, or entertaining the idea that the causes are not purely human and historical and concrete in origin from the past, etc. If I don't allow that kind of causality, then I will, um, uh, I will be fixed only on a certain range of possible causes. Because that is sim- that the kind of archetypal causality is simply not in my frame. The image is primary. That as an idea, you've maybe heard heard me say that in other other talks, other retreats. If I exclude that idea, then my frame for possible causes is is uh, can only contain so much, and I automatically make a make a uh, an assumption, an explanation, and it seems obvious. Years ago, I remember this um, psychology class or something. This photo that psychologists took and um, and showed to people and asked them to say, "What do you think's going on here?" And this and the photo was uh, a street, clearly in London in the 70s, or well, not necessarily London. Some some it looked like it was a UK city, 
in in what looked like the seventies. And the photo was uh, people on the street and a busy high street or whatever, relatively busy high street. And within these people walking around and shopping and whatever um, were two figures. One was a uh, black man um, running uh, in a certain direction down the street through through the through the people. And behind him, about uh, ten or twenty yards, I can't remember, was a. Um, a policeman in a police uniform, a, a white guy, a white policeman in any uniform, and they said, "What do you think's happening in this photo?" And most people said, um, "A policeman is chasing a criminal." Um, and uh, part of the part of the uh, thrust of what they were trying to get at was the sort of implicit racism, etc. But also something about frames in here, um, because it actually turned out. And what they said was, no, actually what this is a photo of is um, two policemen, a black plainclothes policeman uh, that you see there, um, in front by 10 or 20 yards of a white um, uniformed policeman chasing a criminal who is not in the picture. He's out of the frame. So a certain causal interpretation of what's happening is 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 um, uh, constrained or, or conditioned by the frame, and by frame here you can see that it's perceptual as well as conceptual. So similar in relation to suffering and healing and causality there. Of course you know, we can see that the images that arise for us have their um, uh, origins in the past as well. They're not completely out of the blue, autonomous from beyond, no relationship to our life. So we see that that is the case too. Any, any you know, exploration of imaginal practice will see that. And But if I only regard images as um, uh, as being a result of the past... Um, then that's not that won't give them that divine dimension that we've been saying is so important. Could I see? Could I extend that? Yes, of course, images arise from the past, but not only, and maybe uh, even even. Uh, uh, extending it further, it's something more, an even more radical idea. Maybe my past also has its roots in divinity, its roots in, in in archetypal causes, if you like, its roots in archetypal images. So this person who seems to be replicating an early family pattern, it's not that that early family pattern was a cause of what's being uh, played out now in other relationships, contemporary relationships. But both are actually uh, mirroring an archetypal cause. Where is the causality here? And what's going on? And this is the whole opening up of our whole, then whole sense of existence. So not just images intrapsychic, but actually the events of our life are, are archetypal, are divine in origin. They have their roots in divinity. 
that's a much more radical and far-reaching uh, idea. Something uh, of the divinity of everything is much more deeply integrated into the view. So there's a we can talk about a mirroring there. Maybe not even a causality. The causality in the Bible is more like a mirroring. The archetypal, the early family, and the contemporary. All these um, events and experiences or uh, whatever, they're, they're all mirroring each other. Where is the causality here? And this is um, interesting if we just, just stay with this idea of causality now, because it's it has a, it actually has a tremendous bearing on this question of reenchantment of self <coughs> and dukkha and other aspects of our being. So we could say, you know, just to, we could say, we could think maybe there are three or four uh, notions of causality that are possible. So we can, of course, um, have a sense that. Um, the past, something in the past, uh, something or some event or some set of conditions cause the present. The past causes the present. And of course, um, that is uh, the, the most common, if not the exclusive understanding that we tend to have of causality, the exclusive notion of causality. Past causes the present. Of course it does. What else does? Past experience, past event causes present event, present experience. But there's also a notion of the present causing the present that's possible. Now, <clears throat> for our, I, I mentioned in another talk this idea of non-locality, this instantaneous um, uh, fact discovered experimentally that even over vast distances, astronomical distances, um, two particles can actually affect each other instantaneously. The present if you like, causes the present. But that's not the kind of thing I'm talking about right now. Um, more I want to talk about um, or emphasize the, the understanding that's necessary for a Dharma practitioner to understand how views in the present um, fabricate the perception in the present. The conception and the view, the way of looking in the present, in this moment, fabricates the perception. Um, there's, this is not something that happens in time. It's a dependent arising. Uh, we, we understand the teaching of, of dependent co-origination, as the Buddha said, teacher samudpada, um, how the present, if you like, causes the present. Uh, we start to wonder about that word cause. That's a second way of uh, a notion of causality. A third possibility is the idea that the future, the notion that the future causes the present. The future event, um, if you like, or the something in the future, so to speak, causes the present. Again, there's a parallel in modern physics. Some uh, John Archibald Wheeler it, um, proposed certain experiments where you could actually uh, see this, but uh, the possibility of that, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking more about the idea of telos, the Greek word telos, of of uh, what Corbin called the angel out ahead. This image that we have that's calling us to something, that's giving us, not so much about foretelling the future, but it's calling us to our destiny, to our future, to our fulfillment, to um, our living out and embodying of an image, our individuation, all of that. So... Causality from the past, causality from the present, causality for the f from the future, and that as a notion or an idea. 
we could also talk about, I mean, a fourth option is kind of overlapping with the third, but just kind of atemporal causality. So what exists, if you like, in us, but also for us, but exists, if you like, beyond time, atemporal, and um, exists for us as blessing and as challenge. Beyond time, it exists in us and for us. And, 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 and you see, if we pay attention to our lives, the gifts that we have also bring with them challenges. They need to be, we need to learn to grow into, to develop skill and art in, in, in uh, relating to the, the blessings and the gifts that we are given, because they also bring particular challenges with them. But what exists, if you like, as a kind of cause atemporally, beyond time, the integration of that um, and the consciousness of that happen in the linear time and through the linear time of our lives and our consciousness unfolding. But if you like, they come from or they exist beyond time. So there are four, if you like, possible notions of causality, or three or four, depending, three or four. Um, the, the causality from the past is by far the dominant idea, almost universally accepted. So that if, you know, uh, and I see an experience, a Dharma teacher gives a talk and talks about um, how the past, perhaps trauma in the family or this or that, causes the present, how the difficulties, the dukkha we have from the past, or even um, intrauterine, or in the struggles of the embryo, sometimes I've even heard in the struggles of the sperm to, to reach the egg, all of that is a cause of what happens later. The past causes the, the, the current experience, and there's a way, I said, in that explanation that... Um, supposedly is an explanation and an understanding and there's a kind of liberation that comes with that and it's a certain view of causality and of dukkha. So I think this is very, very significant. Um, what do we do with causality and, and time? Uh, and how does that affect time? And what does that affect in terms of both our sense of suffering and liberation for suffering, but also the enchantment or the possibility of enchantment of suffering and also of self? Stay with us a little bit. Probably since Freud, I don't know, I imagine from starting with Freud, um, and nowadays, I'd say most, uh, let's say, um, psychoanalysts or, or certainly psychotherapists, um, or psychotherapists or certainly psychoanalysts, would, um, in, in their relationship both to dreams and to images, would um, construe them as coming from the past. They have their origins in the past. So the dream is um, conveying something, some pain or uh, or triggered by something in the past, whether it's in a um, purely uh, mundane, um, kind of un- uninteresting way or, or something deeper from the past. And that goes for dreams and images. Um, the origin, again, the causality is in the past. Maybe the past as it runs into the present, but from the past. And so I just wonder what happens, as, as in so much of what we're talking about, what happens if we just can have enough wiggle room, enough space inside the consciousness and flexibility, just, just actually suspend that assumption. 
that the images that come to us are coming from the past, that the dreams that come to us are coming from the past. And actually, in terms of dreams, um, you may have seen this, um, how often we dream something and we, uh, we see many dreams. Um, if we pay attention, not just to what happens in the days before, because certainly dreams pick up, uh, Freud had a word for it, I can't remember the, 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 the remnants or the fragments, the debris, the flotsam and jetsam of the days before and use that. But um, uh, not that level, only that level of past, but also the deeper past and wounding and all that. Um, but uh, dreams pick up not just the past, but they also kind of indicate and usher in the future. They open to the future. There's a forward-moving um, uh, 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 forward-moving to, to dreams, let's say. Um, now, this could be something very banal. Um, I ordered something ages ago, and, and it just hasn't arrived, hasn't arrived, and then I um, have a dream, and lo and behold, in the next one or two days, the thing shows up um, after all this time. Or, or you know, more, more common, something like um, I see an old friend once in a blue moon, I hear from them once in a blue moon, we get together once in a blue moon, and I have a dream from them, and one or two days later, in the next couple of days, they, they call. Or something deeper, uh, you know, uh, for us, something more complex, something like um, a dream comes and it has perhaps a particular kind of religious feeling, let's say, to it, if we, if we use that language. Um, or it has in it a, a, a kind, a particular kind of creativity, let's say. And we dream in that way and the dream touches us and moves us, um, perhaps. And there's a, there's a beauty to it. It, it. it goes deep. And then one or two days later, there's a, or a short time later, often that one or two days seems to be characteristic of dreams, I don't, I don't know, this forwardness of dreams. Um, short time later, there's an opening um, or an advent, an arrival of something in the being um, related to the essence of that dream or that image that I had. Um, or there is at least the, um, uh, a few days later, the beginning or an initiation into some opening, uh, a new spiritual direction, a new practice, a new kind of creativity, as I said, that's um, uh, really something that then, then unfolds over years. But the beginning happened just shortly after the dream. So there's this um, dreams as opening to indicating future, ushering in the future. Now what does this imply? Or what might this imply? And and what is the self when 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 we have these kind of dreams and these kind of Im, Im, images, premonitory, if that's kind of the, the word, so yes, say, what is the self? Is, is it just the result of the past? Just the result of my family upbringing and, and, and societal conditioning? Just the result of my genes and biological evolution? Of course, it, you know, it involves all that. But only part, only some levels, perhaps. If we pay attention, if we are open, uh, and if our frame is open enough, we can see we are visited 
we are summoned, we are called by visions, by dreams, by angels, if you like. And in that we are connected to the mundus imaginaris, the imaginal realm, connected to the angels of that realm. We're not separate from that dimension of existence, that imaginal realm. You could say, uh, of course, that that dimension is an element of the self, but you can also say we are an element, an aspect of that dimension, both. And integral to that, integral to that dimension, we mentioned this in other talks, is that the self is not just uh, limited in the ways that we usually feel ourselves to be um, spatially and temporally. The self is more than just something spatial and temporal. I exist here, and I exist now, and I exist from this point to that point, birth to death or whatever, or as some say, even longer, uh, longer than that, beyond death, etc. Something in us, something of the self, a dimension of the self exists beyond space, beyond time. We are not only trapped, or only, to borrow Heidegger's phrase, uh, thrown into uh, linear and uh, linear time, the inexorable marching of time, uh, in his case, towards death or whatever. Sure, there's time. Sure, that's a, uh, a factor, a dimension, an aspect of a, of a certain dimension of our existence, but we are not only that. We get this sense of the self. Um, our being being more than just spatial and temporal. Not just trapped in time, nor actually just trapped in space as it is usually conceived. So both, again repeating something what I said before in, in another talk, both in the um, meditative playing with the lessening of fabrication, with unfabricating, with that spectrum of the fabrication of perception, both in that or through that, and both through imaginal practice and um, entering into iconic uh, images and magical and tantric worlds through these practices that we're doing and imaginal practice, through both that and, and through the experimenting with the fabrication of perception and meditation, um, time collapses, if you like, if we want to use that word, or uh, explodes, or we have different tastes, different glimpses, different openings to eternity, to what is timeless. And we recognize um, through all of this, and this forward-lookingness of dreams, this premonitory aspect of images, all of that, we recognize that um, a dimension of the self is beyond space, beyond time, uh, or dimensions of the self are beyond space and beyond time, and that in different ways as well. So, um, <clears throat> regarding this, uh, we talked about Corman talking about the angel out ahead and this idea of images, um, this telos, this future, calling us to something or something beyond time, then finding its way into our life as blessing, as challenge. Um, listen to something from Henri Colbert. Uh, he says, the ritual celebrated by man, the human being, the ritual celebrated by human being in the temple of his being is his own metamorphosis, 
his own transformation, transubstantiation. Um, the bringing to birth within himself of that form of himself which conforms to the angelic archetype. This is the angel out ahead. And this is through imaginal practice, this ritual celebrated by human being in the temple of their own being is your own metamorphosis, your own transformation into that um, angel out ahead. The bringing to birth within himself, herself, of that form of oneself, which conforms to the angelic archetype. He gives a capital to the F of form. There's a kind of platonic idea there of something kind of inherently existing. Um, Which we're playing with as an idea, but not holding to as a truth. Um, Can also see the dependent rising of that. But note also a difference here um, with, say, a lot of tantric practices in tantric Buddhism where the ritual celebrated, the angel or deva uh, or deity visualized and practiced with and imagined is actually um, pre-prescribed. I've touched on this before. In Corbin's version uh, of of, uh, Islamic practice, the angel is, um, so to speak, conformed to the individual, to the person. The archetype is not universal. So this angel out ahead is very particular to me. You also get that in Jung, that the individuation, that the, an archetype is something we never actually experience. What we experience is individualized images um, that appear to us conditioned both by the archetype that we can never know and the way that forms the image, but also by my personality and, and um, cultural conditioning, all kinds of things. But something here uh, needs opening up uh, in the view, to say this over and over again. Um, And in particular in relation to suffering, in particular in relation to the self, and the suffering self in this case. Um, So taking that uh, direction from what we just talked about, um, from Corban and in Tantra, and uh, again Nietzsche, writes, uh, refers to seeing the madman, uh, in other words, your craziness, your difficulty, seeing the madman as the mask and a speaking trumpet, and the speaking trumpet, the mask and the speaking trumpet of a divinity. Back to the idea of persona that I mentioned in, uh, actually on other retreats, but this, my personhood, including my craziness, my struggles, my weirdness, my... uh, eccentricities and my suffering, the madman as the mask and speaking trumpet of a divinity persona, the what sounds through my personality, my dukkha, the particularities of my life. How do we tend to view and conceive of our our madness, our suffering? It's often not as the speaking trumpet of divinity, or if if a person does that, then it tends towards something, some kind of mania, and it's over-literalized, it's rarefied, it's clung to, there's too much identification. So there's an art here, we're going to come back to that. Delicate, tricky, involves skill, navigation, insight... 
but through you know, in in all of this, again, to to pick up a, something you mentioned earlier, we see so much um, the tendency of a reduction to a, you know what we call a secular humanism. In 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 the way that we regard what the human is, in the way we regard our suffering, in the ways that we regard what healing actually is and involves. There's this reduction to secular humanism that has become so endemic and so saturated, so sedimented into our modern view, modernist view. So healing the past may actually be, I would say, it's actually only one level of healing. Healing the past is only one level of healing. It's only one conception of what healing can extend to and embrace. It's a, for us so often nowadays, it comes. that's what healing means, psychologically at least. What about the healing of the imaginal? The healing of concretizing, liberation from concretizing, liberation and healing from any, any fixed singleness of vision, singleness of view, whether that's physicalism or on the other extreme a kind of um, new age or, or reificationism of angels or whatever it is, any kind of fundamentalism, religious or secular secular humanism, whatever it is, a liberation from all that, and a liberation of soulfulness and soul-making. That's another level of healing, the liberation of soul-making and soulfulness. Full, um, the full uh, uh, liberation of, of the spaces and the depths into which that, can, that soul-making can expand. Now, over time, over a lot of practice and a lot of work, maybe a person, or usually over time, maybe a person um, experiences both levels of healing. Uh, the healing of the past and the difficulties um, of, of upbringing and societal conditioning and schooling and family and all that craziness. And this other healing, the healing of the imaginal, the healing of the fixedness of you, the healing of fundamentalism and, and the rigidities, and the healing, the liberation of soul-making, the fullness of that, or the allowing of, of more and more fullness of that. person experiences both, opens to both, goes through both, and looks back and may feel that this other kind of, this second kind of healing, the healing of the imaginal, of the soul-making, feels that actually of the two, this is the wider healing, the deeper healing, the more radical healing, and maybe often even the more necessary healing. And again we're back to this question of order. Do I need to do the healing of my past before I open to all this soul-making re-enchantment business? Oftentimes that's the assumption. But I you know, I, I'm not. I actually don't know. I think it varies. It really varies. It's a delicate, complex, individual question. But I would say that rather than an order being universally necessary, that's certainly not true. Or even in an individual case, it's more a case of if we really actually ask what, what needs to happen here. The fruits of each kind of healing, or, or gaining the fruit, or a successful healing, if we can even use such a word, um, that's actually dependent in each case, whether we're talking about healing the past, or healing the imaginal, etc. In each case, it's dependent on the development of certain skills, certain capacities, certain insights, certain um, abilities, um, 
psychologically and, and in relationship, that the fruits of each depend on that rather than I do this first and then I need to first I need to do this and then I need to do that. So each each um, one of these healing, if you like, um, dimensions needs a whole host of of, of, of capacities. Healing the past it involves compassion. It involves um, the different flavors of compassion. It involves learning how to feel our feelings um, and tune into them and hold them and have the capacity for them. It involves all kinds of psychological discrimination of uh, all kinds of things. Um, many kinds of skills and capacities come together to allow that healing of the past. I've talked about that other places, I'm not going to go into it now. But the same thing with healing and imaginal. So each of them are dependent on different capacities rather than this needs to happen, this kind of healing, and then that kind of healing. This kind of grounding, then that kind of grounding, or whatever. So in regard, as I said before, in regard to healing, in regard to suffering, in regard to self, there's this so commonly a reduction to secular, some kind of secular humanist idea or reduction to secular humanism. And even in regards to art, um, and our relationship with art, Oscar Wilde uh, wrote, all bad poetry springs from genuine feeling. Now for some people they'd be like, what? All bad poetry springs from genuine feeling, he wrote. Uh, What's going on there? Um, well, there's a couple of meanings here. Uh, genuine is from is from the Latin genuinus, uh, and it actually means inborn. It's different than what we usually take it to mean. Inborn. So all bad poetry springs from inborn feeling, i.e., I mean, we could interpret what he's saying this way, i.e., as my personal feeling. It's all bad poetry is usually too personal. It's too conceived in terms of um, again. Uh, the, the secular human, not something um, beyond the human uh, or divine or whatever. All bad poetry springs from genuine feeling. Something's to me and my history or, or whatever it is. And there's something too, too simplistically one-dimensionally human about it. Um, but of course genuine has this more common meaning to uh, to, meaning to do with authenticity as opposed to artificiality. And again, that also, I think, is implicit in what Oscar Wilde wrote. All bad poetry springs from genuine feeling. So this um, idea that we have to be authentic and true to what is authentic and what is so-called authentic carries much more um, soul and weight and importance than what is artificial what is artifice. Um, so what, again, I'm actually going to quote Nietzsche again. Um, he wrote, uh, the worst of all tastes, the taste for the unconditional, now he's a little unpacking, he's already starting something that's a little complex there. The worst of all tastes is the taste for the unconditional. By the unconditional, he doesn't mean the unconditioned, the unfabricated. Um, in the way that Buddhists might use that, or some Buddhists might use that word. He means um, uh, the, the word is conceived in a certain way that leaves no space for um, art, for uh, 
the emptiness of things and for the creativity to come into relationship with things. So it's just unconditional. It cannot be conditioned by our creativity or realized to be um, uh, a dependent arising. So the, the worst of all taste is the idea that um, wants this or that or anything or concept or self or whatever to not be empty, to not be open to the art of creative interpretation and shaping. This is the worst of all tastes, he said. And he goes on, it's cruelly misused and made a fool of until a man learns to introduce a little art into his feelings even to venture trying the artificial, as genuine artists of life do. To introduce a little art into his entire feelings, and even to venture trying the artificial. So this, this encouragement, again, to um, not be shy of artifice. Um, so you can see that in meta practice, very, very simple. Um, and if you like, where... Um, acting as if something were true, as if a certain view was true, or entering into something, I may be angry and I'm saying, may you be well, etc. Um, there's a little bit of artifice there, actually a lot of artifice, in some, in some, I'm not pretending that I'm not feeling that, but actually there's a place for, um, you see, as we get more and more into, the fa- into understanding and experiencing the fabrication of things, how much our experience, our feelings in this case, emotions and Vedana, actual sensation of pleasantness, unpleasantness, is shaped and shapeable by the view. Artifice, and allowing artifice in, into our feelings, our emotions and our Vedana. Um, so we learn to actually shape and reshape and refabricate even basic um, pleasantness uh, and unpleasantness. What is unpleasant can be very often learned, we can learn how to convert that into the pleasant just by shifting the view. And um, and we see how much the view of something um, contributes to its shaping. So for example, seeing the divinity of my emotion, uh, allowing that artifice in, actually shapes the unfolding of that emotion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.